You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, community radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the garage, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds. and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with sound. Higher and higher, filling it with sound. Filling it with sound. They sound quite mad, don't they? I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, preposterous. Thank you very much. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. I am the narrator. Voice that guides the blind, following up with your ears, with your mind, and allow me to take you back and forth through time to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down the line. Today, on the Magical Mystery Tour, an interview with Rupert Spira a teacher in the non-dual tradition of Advaita Vedanta, which takes the direct approach to the experience of presence, enlightenment, or awareness, or whatever you want to call it, beyond concepts, beliefs, and dogma. Rupert Spira is a teacher who works with people wherever they are, helping to engage people in the direct experience of awareness that pervades everything and is the source of everything as everything is experienced in awareness and is inseparable from awareness. Rupert Spire is very good at using words and language to describe something that is essentially beyond words and language. From about my mid-teens onward, the nature of reality, for want of a better phrase, was really the main focus of my interest. And I started going to a school of classical Advaita Vedanta in London, where I spent much of the next 20 years. I learned to meditate there. It was a formal I, school or just meetings? It, it was, no, it, it was a formal school um, that had originally been started by the Russian philosopher Peter Uspensky, um, but had subsequently moved on and was now under the guidance of the then Shankaracharya of the north of India. I really spent 20 years studying, practicing the classical Advaita Vedanta 
teachings. And at the same time, I also learned um, the Mevlevi turning, the, the, the whirling dervishes, mm -hmm. the Sufi practice. I, I learned Gurdjieff's movements. And, but my main focus all this time was the Advaita teaching as it was taught in a classical Indian format through the Shankaracharya. Mm -hmm. And really, I spent 20 years or so there. It was the main focus of my interest all during those years from roughly the age of 15 to 35. So I meditated twice a day, um, mantra meditation. Mm -hmm. I went to study groups. It was really the, the main focus of my life quite intensely for those 20 or so years before I met my teacher, Francis Lucille. That really prepared the ground. It was, it was like 20 years of preparation for me. Um, what happened next, which was the meeting with Francis, who, who I immediately recognized as my teacher and my friend and, and teacher. And in fact, that meeting, in a way, it made sense of my past. I had got to a stage at the uh, School of Advaita Vedanta where I felt that I couldn't go any further. I knew that there was something that was still missing, something that, that I hadn't really managed to make the teaching my own. I loved it deeply. It was the focus of my, my interest and love and attention, but there was something that was still missing, and I knew this. Um, so it, it, it prepared me then for, for meeting Francis. Mm -hmm. I actually met him for the first time in my home in the West Midlands, but he was living in Northern California. And, and during the subsequent years, I, I spent a lot of time with him in Northern California mm -hmm. before he moved south where he is now. In, in our very first meeting, it was just a, a simple, unmistakable knowing that this is what I've been prepared for. This is what mm -hmm. I've been looking for. But it wasn't about a person, although I, I had and have a, a close relationship, a close friendship with Francis. It wasn't about a person. It was something much deeper than that. It was like a recognition. The way I formulated it to myself at the time is, I've come home. But don't ask me exactly what I meant by that, because home was not a place or a person. It wasn't even a teaching. Somehow there was just this unmistakable recognition. That's it. I'm home. The teaching takes place on many different levels. The, the, the top layer, we could say, is, is teaching. Formal teaching, questions and answers. The teacher either giving a discourse or answering questions. So that's, in a way, one layer of the teaching. But there's also, there was a deeper layer, which was a, a more a, a kind of contemplative exploration mm -hmm. of my experience, which, to begin with, he guided me in, and later on I would find my own ways, inspired by the ways that he had shared with me, I would find my own ways of exploring my own experience. So this was like a, a deeper layer of the teaching, more contemplative, less verbal, more contemplative, and in particular involving not just the exploration of the beliefs in separation, but more importantly, the, the feelings of separation in the body. And that was an exploration that really is not undertaken at the level of words or conversations. So this was something that had been missing in my previous teaching, and I realized it had been mis missing. So these the first few years I spent with him, he really opened the door to this much deeper level of the investigation at the level of the body. And then the third aspect of the teaching was really just being together. Sometimes just being together, sitting in silence as we did often, or, or sometimes just, you know, 
going shopping together or cooking or having casual conversations. So I elaborate on that because I want to make it clear that the, the teaching in words, the questions and answers, it would be simplistic to reduce the advited teaching to, to a kind of an exchange of information or even a conversation. It, it was right from the beginning, it was very much more than that. There's um, an energetic thing going on, but, but even more, even below the energetic thing, there's a, there's a kind of sharing of presence or, or, or silence, which is even deeper than the energetic exchange, let alone the verbal exchange. Um, this exploration of feelings in the body, was it um, a deliberate practice where you would like sit in a meditative way and sort of explore what's going on or was it sort of something you did 24 hours a day when you were awake or it, both? It, it, both in a way, but I wouldn't say that it was even in the more, in its more formal aspect, I would never say that it was a practice. It wasn't like, that here are a set of things that you can do and now you go away and practice them on your cushion. It was never never like that. The, the, the explorations were always just made up in the moment. They were just spontaneous ways of exploring the feeling of being located in and as a body. So to call them a practice would somehow suggest some kind of mechanical element that you as a separate entity can undertake in order to achieve some kind of an outcome. It wasn't like that at all. They were very sensitive and loving contemplations of the body and in particular of the sense of I am this limited located self. So it started out in a slightly formal way, these very loving explorations or contemplations of the body, but then these just extended into everyday life. So in the end, the difference between when I was exploring this with my teacher and when I was just out in everyday life exploring it, that difference fairly quickly faded away. And I would just find myself walking down the street whenever there was spare attention or I wasn't focused on any particular task, this loving contemplation or exploration of, of the body, and, and not just of the body, but, but of the world, of, of my perceptions, mm -hmm. would just take place. So it was just the air I breathed. It was what I loved doing and what I was interested in. And it just took place naturally at, at all sorts of different times of the, of the day and, and the night. All the years that I was in the classical Advaita school, this exploration of truth or reality or whatever we want to call it, or, or, or oneself, it was second nature anyway. It was what I was doing mm -hmm. pretty well 24-7 anyway. But this took that exploration out of my mind. In other words, it took it out of my thoughts and it brought it down into my sensations, into my body. And not just into my body, but out into my perceptions of the world. So it was an exploration that included the sense of separation in the body and the feeling of the world being outside, separate, distant and, and, and other. Was that Francis's specific um, recommendation that you do that or did it just somehow no, no, ar arise no. because of he, your... He had no recommendations, he, okay. he, he had no prescriptions, no recommendations, no agendas. He would just respond to conversations and questions and if I asked a question about something then he would respond to, to the question but there were no... Uh, recommendations per se it was just part of the deepening exploration of my experience that that he led me into let's take an example a real life example in fact it was almost the very first time this happened for me i was sitting with francis in his home in northern california then and we were having a conversation about non-duality and, and i don't remember exactly what it was and i remember at the time hearing a dog barking 
and it was a, a distant sound of a dog and immediately a thought came up that that's the sound of a dog barking and the dog is in the distance on, on the other side of the valley so somehow this was relevant to the context of the conversation and, and I said to him it's so obvious to me that that dog is on the other side of the valley it's so obvious that it's at a distance from myself and it's made out of something other than myself it, it's a dog barking it's not me and I remember at the time I, I, would, I must have been sitting on the floor he, he said place your hands on the carpet so I just actually I shut my eyes mm -hmm. I remember and, and he said place your hands on the carpet and I placed my hands on the carpet and then he just said where does that sensation take place and it was just so obvious at that moment that the sensation took place inside me that the sensation was not at a distance from me it wasn't made out of something other than myself all that was present was the experience of sensing and sensing takes place in me not not in me a body and a mind but in this open empty aware presence and if i look inside that experience of sensing and find out what is there what is it made of awareness is the only substance present there for it to be made of it just became so clear experientially it was experiential before it was rationalized mm -hmm. it was just so obvious that this sensation was taking place inside me so to speak and not only inside me but made out of myself it was like a key and i reasoned with myself if this is true of what I thought was this carpet, this dead, inert material called the carpet. It must be true of everything. So then I would, wherever I went, I'd go out on the streets and I'd be looking at cars and people and houses. And, and I realized all I know of these, these so-called cars and people and houses is the experience of seeing and hearing. Where does seeing take place? Does it take place 10 meters away from myself or 2 meters or 20 meters? When I look at the moon, all I know of the moon is the experience of seeing. Does it take place at a million miles from myself or is it intimate, close, made only out of myself? It just became so obvious that wherever I looked, wherever I turned, all I knew was the experience of experiencing. That was all I ever know is experiencing and, and all experiencing is pervaded by the knowing of it. I am that knowingness, that awareness. It pervades all experience intimately. So it just became clear to me at a very experiential level, long before I was able to rationalize it in the way I'm doing now, that all that is ever known is experience. And I, the knowing element in all experience, pervade all experience intimately. In fact, that, even that is not true because I'm suggesting that there are two things one called experience and another called myself and that they somehow pervade each other it's not even that all there is all we know is the knowing of our experience and that is what I am that is what I awareness is this this pure knowingness which is the substance of all experience the conventional model first of all there is time and space the world appears in time and space a body is born in the world a mind appears inside the body and eventually a little
fragile spark of consciousness or awareness appears within the mind and created by the brain. That's the conventional model. However, there is absolutely no evidence for that model at all because what you're starting with is the absolute reality of time and space in the world and saying that I, this little fragile awareness, appears at some point inside this world, inside this body. But it's just simply not our experience. Our experience was that awareness was there first. When I say was there first, I'm making a concession when I say that to the belief in the reality of time. What I really mean is awareness is here now. But in order to translate it, let's just say awareness was there first. That is our primal experience. So we have a belief that time and space were here first, then the world, then the body, then the mind, and eventually awareness was created by the brain. But it's never been experienced. The experience is always that awareness was there first, that the world appears in awareness, the body appears in awareness, our thoughts appear in awareness, and the only substance present in awareness out of which they are, can be made is awareness itself. We can dance around this question for as long as we like, but in the end, if we're going to use experience as the measure of truth, we have to acknowledge that awareness is here first, before the world. Not, not, not before in time, but prior to the experience of the yeah. Exactly. Let's say, out at the conference, there were maybe 500 people in the room when you spoke, and... Um, we all, you know, presuming our eyesight was functioning normally, saw, you know, someone that we could describe as Rupert Spira. We didn't see a pink elephant on the stage or a, you know, a pine tree or something like that. There was a sort of a, sh a commonality in our mutual experience. So that sort of points to the idea that there's a sort of an ob objectivity to reality that is independent of individual observers. You know what I'm getting at? And, and how, would you how would you respond to that point? I, I would agree. There is a commonality to experience. But it's not the outside world. It is awareness that we share, not the outside world. But because the mind has no knowledge of awareness, it can't see it, it can't know it, the mind, and I'm caricaturing the mind here, the mind says, as it were, yes, there is a continuity to my experience. What can this continuity be a result of? So it looks around for something to explain the apparent continuity of experience. The only place the mind can look is to objects. Well, the mind is obviously not continuous. The body is, in the mind's view, fairly continuous. And the world is obviously the continuous element as far as the mind is concerned. So the mind conceives of this permanent world, permanent time and space. But it's only because the mind cannot know or cannot see awareness. In fact, the world is not shared in our experience. Everyone's experience of the world is private. It's this private, but, but, but there's but, a commonality. But, but, the, but there's a commonality. So what is, what is common in our experience of the world? It is awareness. Yeah, that well, is, well that, we all that, have awareness. That is the only thing we share. But because the mind cannot see awareness, it overlooks the presence of awareness, and it attributes the apparent commonality or continu continuity to the world. So it's just because the mind knows nothing of awareness, what is truly shared, what is truly continuous in our experience, is not a world or a body or a mind, it's awareness. There seems to be a sort of 
uh, an agreed upon so-called objective reality. Uh, we don't yes. all we don't all completely fabricate a different world. If we did, it wouldn't be possible for us to function uh, as human beings or as a society or anything. There's there seems to be an objective structure that is agreed upon, unless we're you know psychotic or hallucinatory or something. And, okay. Okay. Know. So consider this. Imagine you have a dream, and you invite twelve people for dinner. They all sit around uh -huh. the table. And in the middle of the table, there is a vase of flowers. Mm -hmm. Each person that you've invited for dinner describes the vase of flowers. Their descriptions are all slightly different because they're all looking from a different point of view. In a dream. But, this is in a dream. In a dream. But, okay. but everyone's description is similar enough mm -hmm. to make everyone in the dream feel that they're perceiving the same vase of flowers. Mm -hmm. Now, you wake up. What is it that accounts for the similarity of everyone's description. Your own dream. Yes, because it was only one mind that was having a dream, yes? Uh -huh. Now, what about if exactly the same thing is true in the waking state? Twelve people are sitting around a table, or in this case, 500 people in a room. Everyone describes not an identical, but a similar picture, and this is enough to convince everyone that there is a real, independently existing outside world which each of them is getting a slightly different view of. Could it not be that what is common, what gives everyone the, the sense that, that there is a commonality to their experience is because just like the dream, there is one thing in common. Each of the 12 people staying for dinner, they're all born out of the same mind. What about if these 500 views of Rupert sitting on the stage are all born out of the same consciousness? or born out of the same awareness. And it's precisely because they come from and therefore express the same awareness that there is a commonality of view. When the mind then tries to account for that commonality because it can't see awareness, it attributes permanence, commonality, to the object. But it's misplaced. It's projecting it onto an object only because the mind cannot see the true reality of our experience, which is awareness. So you're saying that not only is awareness um, kind of a, a common substratum for us all, but that in a more manifest way, there's a sort of a universal mind which gives rise to an agreed-upon environment. And I'm not suggesting the environment is non-changing. Of course, obviously, it's always changing. But, it, but there's, a, there's an, a, a sort of an agreed-upon structure to it. You know, we all see the red light and we stop our cars. But, but, you know, you're having a dream. Everyone arrives at the traffic light. Everyone in the dream stops at the red light. That doesn't tell us anything about the nature of the mind in which the dream is taking place. Mm -hmm. So if, if we look to objective phenomena to try and ascertain something about awareness, we're never going to find out about awareness. There's only one place to find out about awareness, and that is in awareness itself. But, you know, at best, these arguments are going to be convincing intellectually. That, that's at best. Yeah. In most cases, they're not convincing intellectually. There's always a loophole. And, you know... I don't want to discuss ideas. Let's talk about experience. I don't want to theorize because, you know, to be honest, I don't have any hard and fast theories about the way the physical world is. You know, the answer is I don't really know Good why enough. the physical world is where it is. And I don't really know. And, you know, I'm not really, in a way, I'm not really interested. I don't think that a human mind, if, if we can call it a human mind, can ever truly understand the laws 
that govern the universe. At best, it would be intellectual speculation, and I, I'm not putting that down. There's nothing wrong with it, but yeah. it's not what I'm interested in. No, I, I think the think reason I, I brought it up was just that you know there was a sense in what you were saying that each of us creates the world, you know, through our our own subjectivity, and that sort of made me feel like, well, but yeah, but oh. there seems to seems to be something that is not dependent on our subjectivity that maintains yes. a, a structure to the world. I hope I didn't imply, Rick, that I think that each of us creates the world. All I know of the world is perception. That that's all I know of the world. Sights, sounds, tastes, textures, and smells. That right. that's it. Now these, in my experience, they just appear in myself. When I say myself here, I refer to this aware presence that I know myself to be. These sights and sounds, they just appear in this presence, they're never separate from it, never at a distance from it, and when I explore my experience, to see for myself what these sights and sounds and tastes and textures and smells are made out of, the only substance I find present in my experience is the knowing of them. In other words, it is this knowingness, which, or awareness, that is the substance, the reality of my experience. That doesn't mean that experience doesn't appear as a car, a house, a tree, a moon, a person. Of course, all those appearances, they continue. But when I explore and see what is the reality, what are these appearances really made of, all I find is the intimacy of my own being. That's all I can say. So I don't want to speculate about an apparently objective world because I've never experienced an objective world. All I've experienced is as a perception appearing in awareness. In fact, even that model is not quite right, because I'm suggesting that awareness is like a big open empty space and, and a perception appears in it. It's not like that. It's more like a screen. Of course, even this metaphor is not right, but it's more like a screen. It's not that the perception appears on the screen. It, it is the screen. The screen is the only thing there. When you go up and touch the landscape, the trees and the flowers and the hills and the fields. You don't touch trees and flowers and hills and fields. You never find them. You just find the screen. It's the same thing in my experience. Yes, of course, my experience seems to comprise a computer, a camera, a lamp, a room, etc. But when I go intimately, lovingly to the heart of that experience, first of all, what I find is seeing, hearing, touching. And then when I ask, again, in my experience, not intellectually, but when I ask, what is seeing made of? What is its reality? What is its substance? When I go up to it and touch it, all I find there is the knowing of it. And when I say all I find there, who is the one that finds that? That one is aware or knowing. So it is knowing that finds itself. It is awareness that is aware of itself. That's all my experience consists of. Awareness, knowing itself, being itself, in all this apparent multiplicity and diversity of experience. But it's only a multiplicity and diversity of experience from the point of view of one of the apparently diverse objects. In other words, from the point of view of a separate self. From awareness's point of view, it's not a multiplicity and diversity of everything. It's just itself everywhere. Wherever it looks, all it finds, all it knows, all it loves is itself. The self, our self. This very self present now that is seeing and hearing. 
presumably you started out many years ago, like all of us, uh, perceiving things from the perspective of the isolated individual. Yeah. Sure. And, and now, apparently, things have shifted to the perspective of awareness. Is that a predominant perspective or is it exclusive? I mean, in, in other words, is there still a balance between, uh, you know, universal perspective, seeing everything as an in awareness, uh, and having the sort of individual perspective along with it, or is it just all the other pole of, of the spectrum now? I would say that occasionally old habits of thinking and feeling, and as a result, acting and relating on behalf of a separate inside self continue to appear. These are uh, old habits that still have a little bit of juice left in them and that are occasionally triggered, apparently, by a, a situation or an event. So I would never say never. Uh -huh. these, are, these are the old habits of thinking and feeling on behalf of a separate self. We never know when they're going to pop up again. And they continue to pop up from time to time. And isn't a certain... Um a bit of separate self necessary in order to actually function as a human being and that without some sense of individuality you wouldn't be able to function in the world that's not my experience in okay. fact it's it's the presence of the imaginary separate self mm -hmm. that that causes dysfunctional behavior and relationships in the world the belief and feeling of separation serves absolutely no practical purposes at all it has one function in life, and that is to create unhappiness. It's possible to leave a perfectly sane, ordinary, healthy, active, engaged life with a family, at work, you know, just a regular life without any sense of being a separate self. And, and indeed, without ever mentioning or speaking of non-duality. I mean, if the police were to call and say, you know, Mr. Spyro, your son has been hit by a car, it seems to me that there would naturally be an individual reaction to uh, yes, things but, but like that. Yes, but you see, of course there would, but you're equating individuality with ignorance. You're equating individuality with an expression of the belief and feeling of separation. I wouldn't make that distinct, I wouldn't d define it in that way. When the body-mind is relieved of the belief and feeling of separation. In other words, when the imaginary self ceases to live in here, the thinker, the feeler, the chooser, the decider, or, or in here, the feeler, the lover, the body-mind is then liberated of a tremendous burden. And as a result, that body-mind then flourishes. It doesn't necessarily become a whitewashed wall without any character, without any individuality. On the contrary, it's the belief in separation that crushes true individuality, real individuality, flourishes in the absence of a sense of separation. The, 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 the true character, the individuality, it flowers, it blossoms when it's relieved of the cramp of being a separate, limited self. Mm -hmm. and, and how that individuality expresses itself varies hugely from body-mind to body-mind. In one, there may be an explosion of creativity and extroversion and going out into the world in one form or another. In another, they may just go home quietly and live on their own or maybe have a family and just work in the community or, or whatever. All these two extremes plus everything in between are possible. So that's what I would call individuality. 
individual, undivided, an expression of the undivided whole at the level of the body-mind. And that kind of individuality, that kind of uniqueness, is not an expression of the separate self. On the contrary, it flourishes when the separate self is seen to be non-existent. We're listening to Rupert Spira, a teacher in the Advaita Vedanta tradition. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. These examples that you give, turning your head when your wife calls your name, these kind of things, uh, these, these are just practical responses of a body-mind, of a character, to a situation. There's no ignorance. When I, and when I say ignorance, I, I don't mean this critically. I, I just mean it in the sense of ignoring the reality of our experience. Th- th- these kind of responses are not a sign that the separate self is still in place. I think what happened for many people that had to go to India for enlightenment, because these people, and I I started for 20 years going to India, and that was a tremendous disadvantage to me in some ways, because I never really saw non-duality for real in everyday experience. It was always packaged in the rather exotic culture of India. I could never really see, live alongside, see how, in my case, that the Shankacharya related, you know, what did he talk about when he had his meals? How did he treat his kids? All, all this kind of thing. You know, he was just a flowing white beard and, and an orange robe and no, no, no disrespect at all. He, he was part of his culture, but, but he, he, he was a, a kind of, or Ramana Maharshi was another example. You know, I, I modeled myself on Ramana Maharshi for 20 years and failed spectacularly because all I knew of him was this beautiful, smiling, um, almost silent, being and I thought okay if you want to be self-realized you have to be like that and of course because the only time I ever saw him was in my imagination and one or two photographs I never lived 24-7 and really saw what it was like this understanding in real life and and even if I had been with him in India he was conditioned at one level by his Indian upbringing so for this reason I think many people who went primarily or solely to India for enlightenment still have some residue of a notion that somehow awakening or enlightenment or I I don't like using these words because they're so laden with exotic experiences but somehow that it can wipe the character clean and that you can no longer you can barely function I mean I was at a meeting recently somebody even suggested that when I put on a, a sweater in the cold weather it was somehow a resistance to the current situation and, and it therefore was a sign that I was a separate self and then I asked him well what about when I eat is that you know that, that, that you could say that was a resistance to the feeling of hunger and therefore an expression of ignorance and he said well yes I do think that I mean these these crazy notions and these kind of ideas make enlightenment something impossible to ever realize something that you have to be super human how could i with all my all my faults all my character all my how could i ever realize what these 
people are talking about because you have to be this bland whitewashed perfect creature and and this just projects enlightenment further and further and further away in the distance when actually the teaching should make it seem closer and closer and closer and easier and easier and easier because real enlightenment is not it's not an exotic experience it's the natural condition of all experience it's the most familiar thing we know just the knowing of our own being as it is and it shines at the heart of all experience it's always present it's the best known thing if we can call it a thing that we know these kind of ideas that enlightenment is somehow exotic and far away it's india that is exotic and far away it yeah. is not enlightenment enlightenment and india have nothing to do with each other india is truly yeah. exotic but yeah. enlightenment is not exotic the knowing of our own being the knowing of the light which truly illumines all experience is the most familiar the most natural the, the most easily recognizable thing in our experience and by allying enlightenment to an exotic culture or an exotic experience it puts it at a distance and by putting enlightenment at a distance over there you just crystallize the sense of a separate self in here mm -hmm. but then has to meditate and work hard for 30 years so these kind of beliefs they just perpetuate the separate self and the separate self the more it tries to achieve enlightenment, the more it strengthens itself. In fact, one of the best ways the separate self perpetuates itself is by trying to get rid of itself, trying to attain enlightenment. And this is why people complain. I, I hear this so often in my meetings. I've been doing this for 30 years and I've been trying. And that's very, very genuine. I myself did this for 20 years, but I didn't notice that subtly the separate self was perpetuating itself trying to get rid of itself in favor of an exotic experience that was projected way out there in the future and if possible had an indian or tibetan label attached to it there's only one thing enlightenment is not something that that a human species or any other species enjoys enlightenment awareness recognizing itself of course right. ultimately awareness never ceases to know or recognize itself so even that's not quite true but the the only one that enjoys enlightenment is awareness it's not a human achievement it's not an alien achievement it's not an animal achievement awareness is the only one that is aware of anything and enlightenment is, is awareness just being relieved of the apparent veil which says that enlightenment is not present the light is not present someone who knew I was going to interview you he wanted me to ask you and it pertains to what you're just saying and maybe this is a metaphysical speculation you don't want to go there but he wanted to ask if it seems that there's anything gained by the whole rigmarole of creation having had to somehow manifest and come about and you know life forms evolving who could eventually sort of realize through, through the instrumentality of our human nervous system, that from which they came, you know, to, to quote that T.S. Eliot quote, we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. His question was, is, is there anything that has somehow more than what was there to begin with before the whole, you know, creation manifested? It depends from whose point of view are we going to consider this? From the point of view of awareness, mm -hmm. if we can consider awareness having a point of view or 
from the point of view of the separate self. From the point of view of the separate self, yes, there is a meaning, there is a purpose, there is a destiny, there is something to be discovered, there is something to be achieved. So yes, all that from the point of view of the separate self, there is a purpose to evolution. But from the point of view of awareness, which is the only real point of view, it is already everything it could ever be. There's no becoming, there's nothing for it to find or know. Wherever it looks, all it finds is more of itself. Mm -hmm. So no, from the point of view of awareness, that there's no, there's no purpose, there's no destiny, there's no meaning. It is already that for which all apparent selves are destined. So there's only a purpose or a meaning for a separate self, but the separate self is only a real self from the illusory point of view of that separate self. In other words, imagine a, a, a film, there's a character in a film. The character, and there are lots of people in the film, all the people are real from the point of view of the main character. Everything in the film that appears is real in relation to the point of view of the main character. But that character itself doesn't have a real point of view. It's in the view. It's only made of the screen. The separate self is, is not a real character with a real point of view. It's just an object appearing in the view. In, in other words, the entire adventure of forgetting our true nature and then remembering or realizing our true nature, the whole thing takes place in a little bubble. And, and that little bubble is just like a tiny little thought and feeling bubble taking place in awareness. It seems very important for the one that is inside that bubble. But the one that is inside that bubble is a re only a real someone from the illusory point of view of that one inside the bubble. For awareness, which is the, the only one that really knows or is aware, it's not going anywhere. It's not becoming anything. It is already that for which all seeming things are destined. But when you say well, awareness becomes aware of itself, or everywhere it looks, it sees itself, that, that sort of statement. That implies some sort of mechanism of knowing okay. or seeing, okay. you know, as, as okay. if there were awareness had little senses yeah. in it. No, no, but, but you, you must allow me the limitations of language. Awareness doesn't go around looking and seeing itself everywhere. This is just the limitations of language. I didn't mean to suggest what you are now implying, that somehow awareness goes out looking for itself and seeing itself everywhere. I'm just using language casually and caricaturing awareness. Of course, awareness doesn't go around looking for itself or seeing itself everywhere. It is already knowing itself. It never ceases to know itself or be itself. It's only a thought or a thought and a feeling that rises up in awareness and made only of awareness that seems to make it that makes it seem as if awareness is not knowing itself. Like an image that rises up on a screen that makes it seem that the screen is veiled and that what we are seeing is a landscape. We think, I'm no longer seeing the screen, I'm seeing the landscape. It's like that. In fact, when we're seeing a landscape, we're never really seeing a landscape. We're always, always, always only seeing the screen. Likewise, from awareness's point of view, which is the only real point of view, it is always, always, always only knowing itself. But a thought arises made only of awareness, which seems to veil awareness, like this image seems to veil the screen. And from the point of view of this thought, it seems that awareness is veiled, and this thought made self now has to go out 
and do lots of things in order to find awareness again. But awareness is like a, a wave seeking water. That is what the separate self is doing. It is made out of the very stuff for which it is in search. So there is no true veiling of awareness, just as there is even the darkest horror movie never truly veils your TV screen. So the darkest mood or depression or thought never truly veils awareness. Awareness is only veiled from the point of view of the imaginary entity, which is itself made out of the very stuff, the awareness, which it apparently veils. In other words, there is no real ignorance. This is why in India, they don't have a word for ignorance. They refer to the illusion of ignorance. Yeah. If there was such a thing as ignorance, then we would have a problem on our hands. We would have to sit on our cushion for 30 years to get rid of it. But ignorance is only ignorance from the point of view of ignorance. It's not real. From awareness's point of view, which is the only point of view, there is no ignorance. What can we do about non-existent ignorance? What is there to be done about it? Just to see that it is non-existent. Um, the way, and the word Maya itself actually comes from a couple of roots, meaning which not, it's that which is not. So it's, it's not like Maya is, has any substance to it. it, it actually is not. Well, no, Maya does have a substance to it, but it's just as the, the landscape in your movie has a substance to it, but right. it's not grass and trees and mountains. When you go up to it, we don't find mountains, we find screen. Right. The landscape right. has, it, it, it's an illusion as a landscape, but it's real as the screen. Mm -hmm. Maya is an illusion as objects, selves, entities, but the illusion has a reality to it. Its reality is awareness. I guess maybe what this guy was getting at in his question is, you know, why could awareness not have been content to just remain in, you, in you, itself, you know, uh, without all see, this fuss of a universe? And it almost see, seems like something is gained through the no. whole manifestation where it, it can become a living reality as opposed to flat, unmanifest awareness. Yeah, you see, with that very question, Rick, we create the duality for which we then seek a cause. Why is there all this duality? There isn't. There is, no, there is no duality. So with the question, why all this palaver of a creation? Why all this du mm -hmm. duality? Why wouldn't awareness just be happy sitting at home content? <laughs> awareness is happy sitting at home content. That's what awareness does 24-7. It just sits at home content. Why is there duality? With that very question, right there, the duality for which we are seeking a cause is created with that thought. So why duality? Because you asked the question. Huh. There, is no there is no real duality. From whose point of view is there duality? There is duality from the imaginary point of view of a separate self. From awareness's point of view, which is the only real point of view, there is no separation. Nothing is distant. Nothing is separate. Nothing is other. Nothing is not made out of itself. It's not necessary in order to lead a practical life to make a concession to duality. It's not necessary. You can lead a perfectly normal, functioning, practical life without any sense of separation. Bring up a family, go to work, run a household. These things, in other words, practical, everyday life doesn't imply you don't need a separate self. All the separate self does for us in everyday life is create conflict and dysfunction. It's not necessary. You can do, do the shopping, go to the grocers, go, uh, bring up a family, all of these things without a sense of 
separation or duality. You're making enlightenment sound so impossible if you place it at odds with regular functioning life. Then it would be impossible. I mean, what would we do? All go and live in caves for the rest of our lives? All we can use language in is very ordinary, conventional way and go about an ordinary, more or less conventional life. And at the same time, know that the reality of all of this experience is made out of our own self. Good. One thing that I found intriguing about your book is that more so than most people I read or listen to, you draw a distinction between stages of experience or stages of development in which initially one may realize oneself as awareness, with that I am that, but not yet realize that all oh, this is that. And yes. that in, it, perhaps in time, or maybe you don't want to say time, but eventually or at some point somehow one recognizes, oh, all this is the same stuff as that which I have known myself to be. And yes. I found it intriguing that you drew that distinction. Yes, I, I, I do make a distinction, but that doesn't mean to say that everybody has to go in this way. This experiential understanding can, can take place in so many different ways, so it's just a, a, a broad um, distinction that I make, and it's basically this, that normally we think that I am something, in other words, I, I, what I am is this body and mind, and it is I, this body and mind, that sees objects and others and the world. Mm -hmm. And that for many of us, not for all of us, but for many of us, the first stage to realizing that this is not actually true of our experience is to realize, no, it's I awareness that is aware of the body, mind and world. It is not I, the body and mind, that is aware of the world. It is I awareness that is aware of the body, mind, world. So this, this is a, a realization that what I am is essentially the aware presence that knows the body, mind and the world. So previously, I thought that I was something. I now realize that I am not something, not a thing. In other words, nothing. I am nothing. By that I mean nothing perceivable, nothing objective. I'm not a body, I'm not a thought, I'm not a feeling, I'm not a memory, a perception, an image. I am not a thing or I am nothing. And this is the traditional neti neti, I, I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm that which knows all this, that the path of, we could call it the path of exclusion. And we arrive at I am this empty open presence of awareness. Now if we explore, if we stay there, we don't have to stay there because it's what we always are already. But if, if we explore what is our experience of this awareness, which means what is awareness's experience of itself, because we've now realized that what we are is this awareness. From awareness's point of view, instead of the imaginary point of view of a body-mind, but what is awareness, in my experience, what is awareness's experience of itself, we find that it has no experience of any limit in itself. It has no experience of itself ever having appeared or disappeared. In other words, it has no experience of its own birth or death. It never disappears. It's ever-present. It has no finite qualities or, or limitations. So we realize in this way that what we are, or awareness, so to speak, realizes, of course it always knows this about itself, that, that, that it is ever-present and without limits or infinite. So this realization 
that I am this ever-present, unlimited awareness is what is sometimes called awakening, that the, the knowing of our own being as it truly is, unapparently veiled by the beliefs and feelings of separation. And, and this is sometimes called the, the witnessing, witnessing position. It, it's, it's a halfway stage, we could say, because it's still a position of duality. It's, it's a much subtler duality. There is still awareness here, myself, and all these objects of the body-mind. What is the relationship between my self-awareness and these objects that I now apparently witness, the body, mind and world? And as we explore the relationship between these two, we find in fact that they are not two. All we know of the mind is the experience of thinking and imagining. All we know of the body is sensing. All we know of the world is perceiving. And if we look deeply into the experience of thinking, sensing and perceiving, we find first of all that there's no distance between myself and the experience of thinking, sensing and perceiving. But more than that, we don't even find two substances there. If we go to the experience of thinking, whatever it is that knows thinking is not separate from the thinking. It's just one substance. It's not divided into a thinker and a thought. Sensing isn't divided into one part that senses and another part that is sensed. Seeing isn't divided into one part that sees and one part that is seen. It's one seamless substance. And the stuff that it is made out of is the knowing of it, which is awareness. So this, this we could call, if we call the first path, the path of exclusion. This is more like a path of inclusion. When this, having realized that I am this nothing, this no-thingness, this open, empty presence, we realize that that is the substance of all apparent things. So we move, first of all, from I am something to I am nothing. But then this next step we take, we move from this nothingness that I am is the substance of everything. In other words, I am everything. So these, sometimes I would make the distinction between these two positions. First of all, I am something, the position of ignorance, which simply means the ignoring of the reality of our experience and we move from there to the path of understanding or wisdom. I am empty, unlimited, ever-present awareness. And from there to the path, to the position of, of love where I know myself as everything. And in fact, even that is not quite right because there is no longer everything. There are no longer things. It's not that I am all, I am everything. There are simply no longer things left for me to be the totality of. There is just myself, just awareness, knowing itself, being itself, and that is the substance of all experience. All experience shines with the light of awareness alone. I understand what you're saying, but if I hold up this cup, I don't see the cup as awareness. There's, there's not the, the same kind okay. of unity but just look at your cup now mm -hmm. okay so now you're looking at it and touching it that's perfect so both these the sight of it mm -hmm. and, and the touch of it seem to validate the belief that there is an external object called a cup made out of something other than awareness mm -hmm. so let's take both of these two in turn first of all the sight of the cup your only knowledge of the cup when you're looking at it is the experience of seeing right is that true correct now, where does seeing take place? How close to you? 
The question doesn't make sense, yes, because it, it, it is you, yeah? Okay, so having discovered that it's, it's not taking through, place in the cup. There isn't. We've, we've already discovered there isn't a cup. There is just the experience of seeing. Mm -hmm. Now, in your imagination, if you were to reach into the, to the experience of seeing and try to touch, in your actual experience, try to touch the, the substance out of which seeing is made, what do you find there? Ah, uh, it's, well, it's, I, maybe it's the limitations of language, but it's not something which can be touched. Exactly. That, that implies so, a... Perfect, a, yeah. perfect. So there's nothing solid there, but if you had to find a word, it's obviously made of something because the experience of seeing is real. But so there must be something. What would you word call like it? consciousness, awareness, perfect. you know? it's, it's just made of the knowing of it. Yeah. Yes? N okay, and now the mind objects and says, okay, that may be so for seeing, but what about when I hold the cup? Your second form of knowledge about the cup is the experience of touching, yes? Mm -hmm. Where does touching take place? Again, How close in, to yourself? Again, in awareness, yes. And, and what is, if you were to reach in and try to touch the substance that touching was made of, what, would, what do you find there? Um, that... I am that substance. It's not something that can step Perfect. apart from itself and say, okay, A is touching B. Why do you tell me then that you that you don't experience that everything is made out of awareness with the same clarity that I do? Because you've just demonstrated that that is your experience. Well, you I... never know anything other than this, than the knowingness out of which experience is made. Somehow I'm not getting it. So look around yourself now and mm -hmm. can you tell us can you point to something in your experience that is at a distance from yourself or made out of something other than yourself? Well, it's all perceived by virtue of the mechanics of perception, my eyes, my ears, my nose. No, but now you're the, going into theory, Rick. You have no knowledge of eyes and ears and nose at, at the moment. Stay well, with your if, experience. I, if I went blind or if I closed my eyes, then I'm not seeing you anymore. You, know? you still have no knowledge of your eyes at the moment. It's just a concept <laughs> that, you're super, that thought is superimposing on your experience. So you go to your experience now, mm -hmm. just your experience. In other words, pretend in order to make sure that you're referring to your experience and not to memory or ideas, just imagine that you're a newborn baby now. Mm -hmm. This is the first experience you have ever had. You've right. never had a prior experience. This is all you know. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you have no knowledge of eyes and, and, and ears and, or, or, or you don't even know that you have a body. You just know the current perception. You, need, you know the experience of perceiving. Where yeah. is it taking place? The only reason I say be like a newborn baby is to try to get you not to refer to the past or mm -hmm. to an image of reality or a memory, but just to refer to your direct experience now. Referring only to your direct experience, try to point towards something now that is at a distance from yourself or made out of something other than yourself. Point mm -hmm. to something in your experience now that is at a distance from yourself and made out of something other than yourself? Well, let me qualify. I can't say that anything in my experience is there by, uh, through any means other than consciousness, you know, perceiving it. Um, but, I, and I don't mean to be stubborn and, and drag this on too long, but, you know, I still don't quite get how the thing being perceived is consciousness. Consciousness is enabling the perception, but how is it that the thing being perceived is made of consciousness? I, because, my monitor appears to be made of plastic and metal. Because you keep going back to this idea of a thing mm -hmm. existing independently 
in its own right that is known by consciousness. That is true, relatively speaking. But now we're going beyond that understanding to something that is truer. Nothing we say is absolutely true, but we're going beyond this this second stage, the, 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 the halfway house that we talked about, mm-hmm. where we said, yes, awareness is aware of the objects. We're going much more deeply into our experience now. Where is this separate object that you keep referring to? This thing which has existence in its own right. You keep saying, my monitor is made out of what? But when you go to your monitor, your only experience of this monitor is seeing and touching. Right. Is seeing made out of metal? Is it made out of something solid and dense and inert? Or is it made out of the totally alive substance of awareness, of knowing, of seeing? There's no dead matter there. It's made out of something that is totally alive. Pure, we could say it was just made out of experiencing. What is this thing or object that you keep referring to? Show us an object now that has its own independent reality or existence. Where do you find such an object? From my ability to know things, nothing has independent reality or existence. It, it only exists in my world uh, if I perceive it which is not to say it doesn't exist in somebody else's world. I mean, I'm sure there are things in your room right now that you are perceiving that I'm not, that, that for you have existence, but they don't for me, because I'm unaware of their existence. There are no things in my room at the moment, Rick, and, and there's, no, uh, there's no room. There's just the experience <laughs> of seeing. All I'm aware of now is seeing, touching, and hearing. Mm-hmm. I don't take place inside that. All that is made out of myself. We could say it takes place in myself, but even that's not true because I awareness are not like a big open empty space. I'm, I'm dimensionless. And all this, all this seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, smelling, is made out of this dimensionless, ever-present awareness that I am. Hmm. And I'm trying to suggest that that's all you know of experience as well. We're listening to Rupert Spira, a teacher in the Advaita Vedanta tradition. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. Of course, I'm perfectly capable of conceptualizing when necessary an object a room a person a chair a screen thought regularly conceptualizes experience in this way when necessary but the the difference is that i don't believe that these concepts refer to something that is actually true in other words i don't really believe there are solid independently existing objects made out of dead inert stuff called matter because that's not my experience it doesn't stop me using these concepts but i don't believe that the concepts are true in my heart i stick to the truth of my experience which is that everything everything is made out of this alive aware substance which is myself in other words that everything is myself 
I'm going to have to keep deepening in my clarity on that. I mean, I don't want to, you know, belabor it too much. On the other hand, sure. I don't want I don't want to sort of insincerely say, okay, Rupert, I've got it. You know, it's something yeah. I think I have to grow into with greater clarity. And, uh, you know, I've been talking this way and understanding these concepts for ages, but I just have the sense that there is a degree of genuineness and clarity which can be lived which I am not living as fully as I might. I find this whole conversation very sincere and just been exploring with you the, the real nature of our experience. Um, one thing that, that segues from this that I wanted to talk about you know perhaps you can allude to your experience as a full-time teacher and that is that you know, one can speak from one's own level of experience. One can't do anything other than that, really. But people are hearing from their level of experience, and often there there is an apparent gulf. And sometimes it seems to me people learn the words, and they learn the terminology, and they mistake that terminology for the realization to which it points. And they, be yes. they can even become very conversant with that. They can even turn around and become teachers themselves when, in fact, they've only really gotten good with the terminology and haven't realized the state to which that terminology refers. Do you care to comment on that? Yes. I think something I've realized over the last couple of years is that teaching itself is an art. It's an art form. It's not just a skill. and It's a skill, but it's more than a skill. It's an art form, and it, it requires tremendous sensitivity. And I agree with you completely that just to speak the kosher non-dual words doesn't qualify one as a teacher. In fact, if one is truly coming from the experience, if we can call it an experience, or from the, let's say, from the experiential understanding towards which the non-dual teaching points, then it frees us completely from any convention of teaching. Now, in response to a question that this type of true non-dual teaching may respond with perfectly uh, kosher non-dual language, but in another situation, it may not. The teaching may seem to condone the apparently separate self that is concealed more or less in the question it may even suggest to that separate self why don't you try doing this why don't you explore this why don't you investigate this now the, the non-dual fundamentalists will say oh no no you're just promoting the sense of separation you're giving the separate self something to do therefore you're not teaching the true non-dual teaching i find this approach really fundamentalist because there is no true non-dual teaching the only thing that qualifies a teaching as being non-dual is and that is if it comes truly from that understanding and if it does it's then completely free to use any kind of teaching skill or method including apparently dualistic or progressive methods and i would far rather hear a teaching that seemed to condone the sense of separation that says to an apparently separate self, why don't you try doing this? Why don't you explore this? Maybe you could investigate that. I would far rather hear that than hear every single question answered with the, oh, there's nobody there. There's nothing to do. Everything is made out of awareness. In other words, if, if there's a standard answer to all questions, that 
to my mind, is suspect. It may be true, I'm not suggesting that all such responses are untrue, but if we only take the absolute point of view, then, I mean, actually, if we truly take the absolute point of view, we would never open our mouths. Anyone that speaks about this, anyone that says anything about it at all, is already making a concession to apparent dualism. Just by using the word awareness, we are subtly implying that there is something other than awareness. Right there, we, we imply duality. So, once we're speaking about this, we have to be honest enough and say, whatever we say is not quite right. So, I'm just going to do my very best tailor this love and understanding to the question and be completely free to use language in whatever way seems appropriate at that time for that particular question even if it would seem to condone the sense of being a separate entity hmm. I'm not an expert on Ramana Maharshi but as I understand it he was you know quite accommodating in that respect. I mean, Absolutely. he would, he would yes. recommend or condone all sorts of things according to the individual's yes. you know, state yes. of progress or makeup or whatever. And yes. also, I mean, if you think about it, Advaita Vedanta is only one of six systems of Indian philosophy, and uh, un, as opposed to what some commentators think, those systems were not competing, they were complementary, and they catered to people at different stages of their development. That's a slightly different approach for, from what's, what, what I'm sharing here, which is sometimes referred to as the direct path, where we go straight to the reality of our experience, just straight away we go there. However, that doesn't imply that there isn't an exploration of our experience, both before, or rather, in, in order to enable us to go directly to our experience, there may be some investigation. And also, once the nature of our experience has become clear, there may be a further process of exploration where the old residues of thinking and feeling on behalf of separation are gradually realigned with our new understanding. Mm -hmm. So the direct path is very free. It's both direct. That doesn't mean to say that it always only bats back the absolute truth. And you referred to Ramana Maharshi, the different levels of if we can call them levels of teaching, yes, he said, in fact, that silence was the highest teaching. And one of the reasons for this, the true non-dual understanding cannot be put in words. And if we're not willing to make a concession to language, and some people aren't, then we should keep quiet. And nothing wrong with keeping quiet if we think, okay, it's impossible to say one word about this that is absolutely true, either we say, okay, I'll keep quiet, or we say, I just do my very best with these clumsy, abstract symbols called words, knowing that nothing I say is absolutely true, but nevertheless, it's true in the moment in response to that particular question. Yeah. I have no quarrel with people who only want to take the, the absolute point of view. It, it's beautiful in its yeah. own way, but if you then want to speak about it, then what are you going to say about it? Because as soon as we open our mouths, as I said earlier, as soon as we say awareness or presence or myself, any of these words, right there we're implying the possibility of two things, something that is not awareness, mm -hmm. something that is not myself. So we cannot, we, we have to acknowledge this limitation of language and work within these limitations. But I'd just like to add one thing to this conversation about teaching. It's not really the true teaching 
doesn't just take place at the level of the mind, an exchange of words. It's really, the words come laden with their origin. They come full, permeated, saturated with the place from which they come. If they truly come from silence, if they come from experiential understanding, then somehow they deliver that. Even if you're telling someone how to make a cup of tea or paint a wall, somehow if that comes, if that's the correct response in the moment, and it comes out of love and understanding, then even that somehow will convey at some subliminal level will convey the experience of non-duality or, or rather the, the experiential understanding. It's where the words come from that is the true import of the teaching. Yeah, it's like you were saying about Francis earlier, you guys could be cooking or going shopping Absolutely. together or something, but there was something being conveyed at a, at a more I mean, subtle level that... Yes, you know, after yeah. the first two years with him, and, and I've known him for 15 years or so, after the first couple of years we had very, very few conversations specifically about truth. We were just spending time together talking about all, all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. The actual dialogue, the verbal exchange about so-called truth or reality was, was a relatively small, n not, not unimportant. It, it, it had its place. It was very important for me. But in the total scheme of things, it was relatively small. Would you agree that your your 20 years of studying Vedanta and doing meditation and everything you did was not a waste. I mean, earlier you alluded to it as preparatory and as it seems like you appreciated the time spent doing that in preparation for meeting Francis. And For, for myself, it was absolutely necessary. Every single day of it was necessary. Nothing could have been bypassed. And for others, for some others, a similar kind of apparent preparation will also be necessary, but for others, not. If I can just elaborate on that very slightly, is that this so-called enlightenment, although actually I, I never use the word because, like God, it's become so laden with interpretation, And but this knowing of our own being, as it truly is, is not an experience. When our being is realized as it is, it's true that, that uh, a certain contraction of the body-mind is let go of, is dissipated, and this may send a wave of energy through the body and the mind, which in some people may be extremely colorful. In others, it may go almost unnoticed. But this extraordinary wave in the body-mind is really the after-effect of the non-experience, the transparent non-experience of enlightenment, but it's often mistaken for enlightenment. It's got nothing to do with enlightenment. And enlightenment itself is a non-event, a colorless, transparent knowingness. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's accompanied with these exotic experiences, but sometimes it can be so quiet that it goes unnoticed by the mind. At the other end of the spectrum, it can be so quiet that it's not even noticed, and that one day the mind turns around and it may just say, oh, oh, that, so, yes, so, yes, <laughs> and your life may carry on almost seamlessly, whereas yeah. for, for another person, they may be walking down the road with no prior experience or interest or preparation. This understanding may just fall into their lap, as it were, and, you know, for the next 
five years, the rug is just totally pulled out from underneath them. They're disorientated, they can't go back to their lives, they can't go back to their relationship, to their work, nothing makes sense anymore. So mm -hmm. both of these two are possible. And yeah. of course, everything in between. So to go back to your question, yes, for me, it was necessary. Mm -hmm. It may be necessary for others, maybe not. Yeah. No, I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, both Eckhart Tolle and Byron Katie had awakenings like that, which were not preceded by any practice and which were quite sudden and abrupt. And they basically had to sit around on the park bench for a couple of years, you know, yes. getting, uh, getting oriented and integrated. Yes. Uh, but it's not, that's the exception rather than the rule, I would yes. say. Yes. See, most people, they do the integration process. As they go along, the body-mind is slowly being integrated mm. with their understanding. So when this non-event called enlightenment is realized when the knowing of our own being as it is is realized the body mind may already be largely realigned there may be no big deal it may be just oh oh yes yeah. of course that's so obvious now of course i see clearly now and then you may just go back to work the next morning in other words you either do the integration before or after it doesn't really matter which <laughs> a, a body mind that has been used to serving a sense of separation for 20, 30, 40 years is going to be full of old contractions and tensions and those are going to be washed out of the system. It doesn't matter when. It's either going to be before or after or in most cases a bit of both. Yeah. And with one person there may be a question and you may say, well actually, who is this one that wants to still the mind? Who is the one that wants to do that? In other words, you may completely undermine any attempt to do something with a goal of enlightenment. But then two minutes later, you may be asked another question by another person. And you may say, why don't you just stop for a minute and explore your experience? Just have a look. Look around you, you know, whatever. It is. And you may then suggest some kind of investigation or exploration so these two answers would seem to contradict each other but they don't contradict each other because they come from the same place but where they come from is just uniquely tailored lovingly and uniquely tailored to each question mm -hmm. and could appear to give very different answers but they're not it's the same love and understanding that is being refracted and tailored sensitively, lovingly, to each question, to each situation. That is the art of teaching. Yeah. You're only 51, so uh, hopefully for quite a few decades more you will be refining that art. And um... It is constantly refined. The form, is, as you rightly say, it, it's, if it's alive, it's always finding new shapes, new words. It's always moving, changing, and yes, as you say, re refining itself. How about your experience itself? You know, your teaching art is refining, but how about your actual subjective living of life? Do you, yes. is, is there some refinement to that? that you, yes, yes. I'm glad you asked that question because so often, and I think this goes back to our earlier conversation about those of us that went to India that saw enlightenment as the kind of the end goal. Mm -hmm. In fact, what I've realized is that enlightenment is just the end of what's called enlightenment or awakening to one's true nature is really it's just the end of one chapter mm. it puts the chapter called the separate me to an end it's the end of that chapter now the old habits of thinking feeling acting perceiving relating on behalf of a separate self continue 
for some time because we've been rehearsing them for whatever it is 30 40 50 years they have some momentum to them they keep going so these old habits in the way we act the way we relate the way we perceive the way we move the way we sit the way we think the way we feel all these that the separate selfness is gradually washed out of the system hmm. and what I'm realizing what I've realized is that there's no end to that process in the Christian tradition it's what I think is referred to as the transfiguration it's when the whole of the body mind world mechanism is gradually permeated more and more permeated with the light of awareness it's one thing to recognize the light of awareness and to recognize that it is ever-present and without limits but it's another thing for the body to be totally saturated in it and not just the body but the world to allow the old ways of moving acting relating perceiving to be completely flooded by this experiential understanding and to answer your question yes th that is a process that carries on and you know I hope it always carries on I don't think there can be an end to that in other words in ignorance if we can use that phrase without it sounding pejorative when we ignore the reality of our experience what we are this the light of awareness seems to become like a body and the mind in other words it becomes temporal local limited in understanding or in love it's the other way around the body the mind and the world become more and more and more like the light of awareness they become permeated saturated and they become more transparent more open more more loving until our experience not just our understanding but our actual experience of the body and the world is one in which everything that the body the mind the world is saturated permeated with the light of awareness i mean in the word god comes to mind it seems that there's a i know that word has so many connotations but um there's a sort of a divine intelligence that i intuit in everything and it seems to me that could become much more evident yes um, I, I think you're right i think after the realization of our true being in a way we just surrender the body and the mind and the world to this presence and it's like you imagine a glass of water and you take a drop of milk and you drop the milk in the water to begin with it has its own name and its own form but gradually the water permeates the drop of milk and the, the drop of milk loses its name and its form and so to begin with it becomes this kind of vaporous cloud-like form but in time even that the water so permeates the milk that it just the milk becomes water it becomes so saturated with the water that there's no trace of its name or form left it just becomes the water so that is the process that you're referring to which I think is a never-ending process where the body and the world as well as the mind just become totally saturated with this love with this light with this transparency mm, that's very beautiful so I've really enjoyed this conversation Rupert I, I have to read thank yeah. you was Rupert Spira. He's a teacher in the non-dual tradition of Advaita Vedanta. And 
that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week. 